If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 26. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one off of our tables back here. And if you have one of those Bibles from the, from the tables, um, it starts on page 20. Genesis 26. This is the only chapter in Genesis that's going to focus on Isaac specifically as the central figure. Okay, Focusing specifically on Isaac as the central figure. And in every other Way every other place that he's mentioned in Genesis, he's going to be referred to as his supporting role, either as Abraham's son or as Jacob's father. But this chapter is the one chapter that, that, that plants us right here in front of Isaac and looks at him, okay? And this chapter is important because it shows Isaac as the patriarch who receives the covenant blessings and promises from the God of his father, Abraham. And today we're going to hear a lot of things. If you've been coming and you've been, you've been uh, joining us throughout this, this uh, adventure in Genesis, okay, um, you're going to hear a lot of things you've already heard. We're going to revisit some stories we've already read this morning. But as we do that, we're going to see why repetition is not only good for us, but it's absolutely vital. It's necessary for all of us when it comes to our relationship with God and with one another. And so before we read God's word and, and get into the message, I want to pray and ask the Lord and his spirit to help us and guide us through this. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us your presence through your spirit and that you will never remove yourself from us because of what Christ has done. We pray this morning that through your word, you would uh, enliven our eyes, our ears, our hearts to be reminded of these glorious truths that don't just apply to Abraham and Isaac, but to all your children whom you have called by your faithfulness and called to faith in you. We love you. We pray this is for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the older I get, the more I'm told uh, that I'm, I'm like my dad in a lot of ways, okay? Some of you have met my dad. Some of you know him, and maybe you can agree with this. Um, I'm starting to look like him more, uh, sound like him more. We have a lot of the same mannerisms, the same fantastic sense of humor, okay? And um, the, the ones that are laughing know my dad, I think. Um, so I, we could say like father, like son, right? You, you've heard this before, and some of you probably... Uh, that fits for you as well, or like father, like daughter, like mother, like daughter, whatever, okay? Um, today we're going to see that Isaac took after Abraham in a lot of ways, okay? He's gonna, his story is going to sound a lot like Abraham's, and when it comes to the choices that he makes, when it comes to the adversities that he faces, the conflict that he gets involved in, and to the blessings that he receives, we're going to see this, like father, like son, Abraham and Isaac. And through Isaac's similarities with his father Abraham, here's, here's our main idea this morning. We're going to see God, that God's faithfulness continues from generation to generation, and God calls each generation to faith in him. God's faithfulness continues from generation to generation, and God continues to call each generation to have faith in him. Let's dig in. Genesis 20. 6, verse 1. There was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. 
Live in the land that I will tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give all these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, you probably heard a lot of things in here that you recognize. This whole scene has echoes of Abraham's life, including when God first called Abraham back in chapter 12. If you remember how that began, God told Abraham to leave his homeland and to go to the land that God would show him. And then God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, to to bless him and to make his name great and to bless all the nations through Abraham. Look at the similar language that God uses here with Isaac. In verse 2, he tells Isaac, live in the land that I will tell you about. Go to the land that I will tell you about, right? Then in verse 3, God tells Isaac, I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. And then he goes on to spell out that oath in verse 4. And he promises to make Isaac... Uh, to make Isaac's offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, just as he promised to make Abraham into a great nation in chapter 12. God also made this, this stars of the sky promise to Abraham in chapters 15 and 22. We're just getting flashbacks of these things. God also tells Isaac, I will give your offspring all these lands. Three times he told that to Abraham. Same promise in chapters 12 and 13 and 15. And then God says, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Again, same thing God tells Abraham in chapter 12 and repeats in chapter 18. So what is God doing right here? What's he doing? He's essentially telling Isaac, I am your father's God and I will be your God. I am your father's God and I will be your God. When God called Abraham, God promised to give Abraham offspring and land and blessing. What is he promising to Isaac here? The same exact things. But God's also calling Isaac to faithfulness here. And he does so by pointing out the faithfulness of Isaac's father, Abraham. In verse 5, God says, Abraham, listen to me. And he kept my mandate and my commands and my statutes and my instructions Now, that language is very specific. It's the first time we've heard it here in Genesis, but we actually see it in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? In Deuteronomy 10, Moses, when when God brings Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, he brings them to Mount Sinai, he gives them the law through Moses, and and, and then um, they get this law, and then what do they do? They squander it, they wander, uh, God sends them wandering in the desert. That whole generation dies New generation raises up in the desert, and then God leads them back to a mountain. Moses gives them the law again, Deuteronomy, second law, okay? It's the repetition. They need it too. They come and they get this law. Here's what Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 10. He recounts God's faithfulness to the Israelites and reminds them that God has made them as numerous as the stars in the sky. Don't you love that? He's reminding them of God's faithfulness. Listen, what God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he has done for you. You are the result of that promise. And then he says this in Deuteronomy 11.1, Therefore, love the Lord your God and always keep his mandate, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commands. 
It's almost the exact same wording we just read in, here in Genesis 26. Now, if you remember, Moses is the primary author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the, the, the people that he's speaking to in Deuteronomy, these are the ones that he originally wrote all of these books for. He's rehashing their whole history for them as they get ready to go into the promised land with Joshua, into the land that God has promised to them through their ancestors. And so as he recounts this, these promises, when they hear God's words here in, in, to Isaac in, in verse 5 about Abraham's faithfulness, it's a reminder to them of what, of what Moses says to them or, or said to them in Deuteronomy that they've also been called to be faithful to the same God. But we know, we know, right, that Abraham did not have a flawless, or, or that, we didn't, that he didn't have the law, right? The law doesn't come until after Abraham. The law doesn't come until Exodus, Leviticus. We don't get the law when Abraham is around. So what's the point that God's getting at here, back here in Genesis 26, verse 5? Abraham didn't need the formal law because the essence of it was written on his heart. And the essence of the formal law is to believe God and do what he says, to walk in obedience to him. Jesus summarizes it by saying, and you hear that in the echo of what Moses said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is what Abraham did. His faithfulness to God is reflective of his faith in God. Remember Genesis 15, 6? What did it say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then we get to Genesis 22, when God tells him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And we know that this was a test of faith, right? When we went through that, and yet, Abraham's obedience in chapter 22 was a reflection of that belief from chapter 15. He believed God's promises, and so he did what God said. He was willing to do what God said and offer up Isaac as a sacrifice because he trusted God to keep his promise. That promise to actually carry out the covenant blessings through Isaac. And Hebrews told us that, that Abraham thought, well, Surely you can at least raise him from the dead, right? God's going to keep this promise, so he's got to do it. Now, we know that God intervened and he saved Isaac from being sacrificed and he provided a ram in his place. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, God sending his son in our place. And then he swore an oath confirming his covenant blessings to Abraham because Abraham listened to God and kept his command. Isaac was there. Isaac was there. When God made this promise to Abraham, this oath, and now in verses 3 through 5, God is promising those same covenant blessings to Isaac as he points Isaac to Abraham's faith and obedience. What's running through Isaac's mind right here as he hears these words from God is that scene in 22 when his father laid him on the altar and God said, hold on. Amen? God's faithfulness. Abraham's faith, but we know that Abraham's faith was not flawless, right? That should be another big amen. And we're reminded of that here at the very beginning when this story opens by mentioning another famine like in the land like the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. What's the first thing God says to Isaac 
when he appears to him in verse 2. Don't go down to Egypt. Don't go down to Egypt. Why would he say that? Why would God be so adamant, hey, Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. There's a famine. What did Abraham do when the famine occurred in his time? Brother went down to Egypt. He went down to Egypt. And what did Abraham do when he went down to Egypt? Remember? He lied to the, to the Egyptians and told them that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Why? Because he was scared. He was afraid that they would kill him and that they would take her for themselves if they knew that she was his wife. He was driven by fear in that moment and not by faith. Abraham's faith is not flawless. It's not perfect. And when you're driven by fear, you end up with a whole lot of problems, right? And we saw that. Here in verse 6, it says, so Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, he obeyed God's command not to go down to Egypt. This is more than just an editorial comment here. This is a display of faith. What does God say to Isaac? Don't go down to Egypt. Isaac says, okay, I'll stay. I'll stay. Just like when God said, Abraham, leave here and go to the land I'll show you. What did Abraham do? Packed up his stuff and went. This is a display of faith. It's not just commentary. But, Isaac settled in Gerar. Who lives in Gerar? A man named Abimelech and a people named the Philistines. Sound familiar? There was another time when Abraham lied and said that Sarah was his sister, and it was when he was in Gerar back in Genesis 20. And who did Abraham lie to? King Abimelech, right? Now, we, we talked back then, Abimelech is like saying Pharaoh, okay? It's probably not a name, it's more of a title. So these probably aren't the same two Abimelechs, but they're probably in the line, probably father, son, grandson, grandfather, something like that. So as we sit here and we, we recall Abraham's blunders, it begs the question then, Isaac is in Gerar. Is this going to be like father, like son? Is he going to take after his dad? Let's find out. Look at verse 7. When the men of, of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For, the, for he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. When Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing. The Hebrew word there is, is laughing. It's a wordplay on Isaac's name. Caressing his wife, Rebekah. Abimelech went, sent for Isaac and said, so she really is your wife. How could you say she's my sister? What's, what's up with that? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might die on account of her. And then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? That ought to sound familiar too. One of the people could have easily slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people, whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death like father, like son. Isaac has the same fear of man that Abraham had. Abraham thought that the Philistines would kill him on account of his wife, and Isaac was afraid for the same reason. And so like his father did, out of self-preservation, Isaac also lied and said that his wife 
was his sister. I do not recommend this. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Were Abraham and Isaac tripped up? Yeah. God had promised to bring blessing to the nations through them, but instead of being instruments of God's blessing, their actions actually uh, threatened to bring guilt on this, this nation, this Gentile nation, on the Philistines. And once again, it's Abimelech here who appears to be more righteous than the one that God has chosen to, to carry on his covenant promises. This is more evidence that what we have is, is all of God and none of us. It's by grace. We get what we don't deserve, remember? Now, Isaac wasn't alive when Abraham lied to Pharaoh in Egypt or when he lied to Abimelech and Gerar, okay? So we can maybe give him a pass there. But it, the text doesn't tell us whether or not Abraham ever told Isaac about those times, but it's clear here he did not learn from his father's mistakes, right? He, he just carried them on. It's also clear that deception runs in the family. We've seen it in Abraham. We're seeing it with Isaac. We, we saw a, a glimpse of it with Jacob. Next week, we're going to see even more of it with Jacob and with Rebekah. In fact, for the rest of Genesis, everyone who's related to Abraham, everyone through whom the covenant blessings pass down that line, guess what? They're liars, cheaters, deceivers to show that it is God's grace and not from works. Otherwise, it would cease to be grace. But we'll also see God's faithfulness to each generation in spite of their sins, in spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their failures, and that's what we're gonna see right here in these next verses. Look at verse 12. Isaac is still in Gerar. Isaac sowed seed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, and many slaves, and the Philistines were envious of him. Not only did God protect Isaac and his family through Abimelech's decree in verse 11, but he also provided abundantly for them while they remained in the land. Now, Isaac lived in Gerar long enough to plant and harvest a crop there. And, and his harvest was a hundred times what he planted. In any good year, this would have been a bumper crop. This would have been something that was well beyond expectations. But what makes this even more exceptional is that Isaac is able to harvest this abundance in a time of famine. There's a famine in the land, right? We're told this in verse 1. The area that he's living in is an arid region to begin with. But when you add a time of famine on top of that, that means that the water in the region that you normally would receive, it's gone. It's non-existent. And when you have no water, you have no crops. And when you have no crops, you have no food. And when you have no food, you have a famine, right? But Isaac was, has more food than he knows what to do with. And verse 12 gives us the reason the Lord blessed him. When we see blessing, especially in Genesis, we can think of it in terms of abundance, okay? Sometimes that's physical things, but the more we go through Scripture, we see that the blessing of abundance is actually 
God himself and all that he's given to us through himself, through his son Jesus and his spirit and all these things. This is not a, um, uh, uh, Isaac is not living his best life now. This is not, this is not he, he gets to be healthy, wealthy, and, and happy for the rest of his life here. We're going to see in a minute. He's going to have some struggles. But nonetheless, in this moment, the Lord has blessed him with an abundance of crops. And not only does Isaac's food grow in abundance, but so does his wealth. And all of this makes the Philistines jealous. The man who lied to them is getting all the good stuff. And they want it. The irony is that Isaac thought that they would be envious of him because of his wife, and the reality is that they're envious of him because of his wealth. That was more appealing to them than Rebecca was. And, and by Abimelech's decree, they can't harm his wife, they can't harm him, or they'll be put to death. But nobody said they couldn't try to hurt his status or his riches. Look at verse 15. Philistines stopped up all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling them with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, leave us, for you are much too powerful for us. So Isaac left there, camped in the Gerar Valley, and lived there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham and that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names his father had given them. And then Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a wellspring of water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, the water's ours. So he named the well Essek because they argued with him. And then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved from there and dug another, and they did not quarrel over it. He named it Rehoboth and said, For now the Lord has made space for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Verse 15 gives us some background information that sets up the rest of what we just read. If you remember back at the end of chapter 21, Abraham and, and that Abimelech had made a covenant of peace with each other that was supposed to be passed down from generation to generation on both sides, okay? This was a covenant of peace that, that, that we'll, be, we'll be good and we'll pass this on so that our sons, our grandsons, all the way on down, they'll be good. But before Abraham agreed to that covenant, he, he told Abimelech about uh, some of Abimelech's servants who had seized a well from Abraham, a well that Abraham had dug and had the right to use. Part of this covenant that he made with Abimelech then included this recognition from Abimelech that Abraham's claim was true. And so they made the covenant, and Abraham lived in, a, in the land as a foreigner, uh, uh, the land of the Philistines, for many days. That's how that, that closes out at the end of chapter 21. Now, while he lived there, According to this, it's apparent that he dug more wells. And most likely, sometime after his death is when these Philistines stopped up all the wells and filled them with dirt. They probably did that to discourage other nomadic herdsmen from coming into the area and staying there, as Abraham did. But when they stopped up the wells, they violated this covenant of peace that Abraham had made with Abimelech. And the covenant that ensues with Isaac is reflective of that. 
And then the new, the new Abimelech tells Isaac to leave Gerar because Isaac has grown too powerful to stay there. And so Isaac obliges and he moves to the Gerar Valley outside of the city, not, not super far away. And, and while he's there, Isaac starts reopening all of these wells that Abraham had dug and the Philistines had stopped up. In an arid region like this, wells were lifelines to those living in the land, especially those living as nomads. They needed a water source wherever they went. So this was an important thing. By giving the wells the same names that Abraham had given him, Isaac is claiming rights to these wells. These are mine. I can use these. My father dug them. Not only does Isaac reopen his father's wells, but then he digs some of his own. And when his servants dig in the valley, it says they find a, a well of spring water. In the Hebrew, they literally find, I love this, living water. Living water. It's water that never runs out. They have a constant flow, a, 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 an abundant source here. And this is incredibly valuable in such a dry and arid region, especially one that's experiencing a famine. So, let's recap for a second. Isaac now has an abundance of food and an abundance of water during a time of famine in a land in which he's a foreigner. You'd probably be jealous like the Philistines too, wouldn't you? That's why they're doing what they're doing. Quarreling breaks out between the herdsmen of Gerar and Isaac herd, Isaac's herdsmen. Because water is such a precious commodity in an area like this, these disputes over wells, owners, who owned what and who had the right to what, all of this was, was a common thing. Okay? The herdsmen of Gerar say, this water's ours. Isaac, but Isaac still gives the well a, a, a name, which again is this assertion of his own right to use it. This happens twice, and each time Isaac gives the well's names that reflect the conflict that he has with the Philistines. Essek means argument, and Sitna means hostility. Name the wells after these, after these disputes. So he leaves Gerar Valley, and he moves further away from the Philistines, and then it appears here that like the third time is the charm, right? They dig another well, and, and this time there's no opposition from the Philistines, and so Isaac names this well Rehoboth, which means open spaces. And what does he say? Now the Lord has made space for us and we will be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth will become a well-known city on the border of the land of promise. This scene is meant to draw our memory back to two things. First is from chapter 13 when Abraham and Lot separate because the land couldn't sustain them both. What happened between their herdsmen? Do you remember? Quarreling. Their herdsmen quarreled with one another. This isn't big enough for both of us. So Abraham says, Lot, you choose. You choose. You go one way, I'll go the other. And Lot chose to go east to the plain of the Jordan River. Why? Because it was well watered everywhere, right? You want water so that you have crops. And after he left, God promised to give Abraham and his offspring all the land of Canaan as far as Abraham could see in every direction. What did God do for Abraham and his descendants? He made space for them. He made space for them. The other thing that we're drawn back to is God's original blessing and mandate to Adam and Eve in Genesis 128. We've been so uh, uh, 
like focused on Abraham and his descendants now, this one family, it's easy for us to forget where all this started. When God created man and woman, when he created Adam and Eve, he blessed them he, and he gave them this mandate, be fruitful in the land, multiply. And in Isaac's words, we see that God is faithful to carry out his own mandates and promises. We don't want to forget that. God's making space. And he's keeping his promises. What happens next is not only a display of God's faithfulness to the next generation, but it's also a display of the next generation's faith in God. Look at verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. And so he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. Isaac's servants also dug a well there. Now, it's significant to note that in the entire book of Genesis, the only times that specifically mention, that has this phrase, the Lord appeared to. You know, the only times that that's, that that's said is when he appears to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. We know that he was with others. We know that his presence was, says Noah walked with God, right? He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. So it's not that, that God was never present with other people. But when it says God appeared, that tells us that this is a significant moment in the storyline. And it is. This is the moment where Abraham's God becomes Isaac's God. Just as he had appeared to Abraham multiple times, God now appears to Isaac for the second time in this narrative. The first time he appeared, he said, don't go down, don't go down to Egypt. And now he appears again after Isaac has, has, has done what he said. And he says, uh, he tells Isaac about the relationship with Isaac's, uh, about his relationship with Isaac's father. And then he reiterates the promises that he made to Isaac the first time, the promises that he made to Abraham before, all of these things that we now know and can, can recite ourselves, right? He says, I will be with you. I will bless you. I will multiply you. And Isaac responds to God the same way his father had done before him. He builds an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord and he pitches his tent there, the, the, he worships the God of his father as his own God now. Abraham's not there. Isaac has seen his father's faith in God, and now he has faith in God. Why? Because he's seen his, the, the faithfulness of God to his father, and now he's seeing God's faithfulness to him. Abraham's God is Isaac's God. This is huge. Because this sets us up then for God's continuation of his promises to remain faithful to what he said to Abraham. And Isaac isn't the only one who sees this faithfulness of God. This scene is bookended with two statements that set up the final scene in this chapter. Verse 23 tells us that Isaac went up to Beersheba. We should recognize that one. And verse 25 says that his servants dug a well there. Beersheba is the name of the well that was the focus of Abraham's covenant with Abimelech back in chapter 21. And that covenant was violated by the Philistines here 
in this chapter. And now they're coming to make amends. Look at verse 26. Now Abimelech came to him with, uh, from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? You hated me and sent me away from you. And they replied, we've clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. We think there should be an oath between the two parties, between us and you. Let us make a covenant with you. You will not harm us just as we have not harmed you, but have done only what is good to you, sending you away in peace. You are now blessed by the Lord. So he prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank. And they got up early in the morning and swore, swore an oath to each other. Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. On that same day, Isaac's servants came to, to tell him about the well they had dug, saying to him, We found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is still Beersheba today. This story began with Isaac going down to Abimelech in Gerar for aid, for help, in a time of famine. And now it ends with Abimelech going to Isaac because Isaac is the one with abundance. When Abimelech arrives with his officials, Isaac calls them out right away. He's like, hey, hold on. You kicked me out, remember? Your herdsmen fought with my servants. You wanted nothing to do with me. What are you doing here? And what was their response? Listen, we've clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. We've clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. It's the same thing that the previous Abimelech said to Abraham back in chapter 21. He told Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. These nations are noticing. These men recognize that God is with Isaac and, and that Isaac is blessed by the Lord. Even after they kicked Isaac out of their land, God still provided for Isaac abundantly. And, then, and when they saw that, they realized that it was in their best entrance, in, it was for their good. Not to get on his bad side anymore, right? Not to be in contention with this blessed man. And so now they're here to make a covenant of peace with him just as their fathers had done with his father. Notice how their perspective on things is a little bit different than Isaac's though, right? He says they sent him away because they hated him, but in verse 29, they say that they've only done what is good to him, sending him away in peace. Somehow they forgot about the wells, right? They're trying to downplay the tension that's clearly evident here. And so they say, look, we haven't harmed you, and you haven't harmed us, so let's make a covenant and let's keep it that way. Sorry about the wells, right? Even though there was contention between them over the wells, Abimelech, we, we need to remember this, he did protect Isaac after Isaac lied to him. Nobody's innocent here, right? He protected Isaac and Rebekah from harm. They literally did not harm them. So what they were saying was true. It just wasn't all the truth. Maybe that played into Isaac's agreement. Either way, it doesn't really tell us why he agrees to it, but he agrees to their request. He prepares a meal for them as a customary part of the covenant promise, or a, 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 of the covenant process, a meal from his bumper crop most likely, right? They're feasting here with him. He does it as a gest gest uh, gesture of hospitality. And after they swear the oath 
to each other the next morning. He sends them away, not in hatred, but in peace. They make the covenant. Remember in verse 25 when it said that Isaac's servants dug a well there? Here in verse 32, we find out that once again, the well that they dug produced water. Was there a well that they dug in this whole chapter that didn't? That's pretty significant. This time the Philistines won't be quarreling over this one because they have a treaty with one another. So Isaac names this well too, claiming his ownership of it again and his right to use it. He names it Sheba, which means oath. And the place where Isaac made the covenant with Abimelech bears the same name as the place where Abraham made the covenant with Abimelech, Beersheba, the well of the oath. Like his father did before him, Isaac trusted God and lived at peace with his neighbors. And like Abraham was, Isaac was also the source of blessing to the nations because of God's promise and his faithfulness. So what does that mean for us? As we see the many ways that God is faithful to Isaac here, we've been reminded of the many ways that God was faithful to Abraham, but it should also remind us of the many ways that God has been and continues to be faithful to us, to you and to me. This is why repetition is not only good, but vital for all of us when it comes to our relationship with God and with one another. Why? Because we're plagued with forgetfulness, right? We'll go out of here today, and half this stuff will be in one ear and out the other. And I won't take offense to that. Not much anyway. But you know what? You get to take God's word with you and not mine. You get to actually go back and look at this for yourself and be reminded of God's steadfast love, his mercies that are new every morning, his faithfulness that is great to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to you, and to me. spite of our own foolish choices and in the midst of all the adversities that we face, God remains faithful to bring us blessing. Why? Because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Hebrews tells us that he is the radiance of God's glory. Just soak that in for a minute. And the exact expression of his nature. You know what that means? Like Father like son. And through the life and the death and the resurrection of the son, we have received the blessing of peace and reconciliation with the father through his new covenant promises and blessings because Jesus kept his father's mandates and commands and statutes and instructions. We are now counted righteous through faith in him. We believe God, we believe Christ, and we are counted as righteous. And it's because his death paid the punishment for our sin that when we behave in foolish ways as Abraham did, as Isaac did, as Jacob did, as everyone else in Scripture who's not Jesus did. We see that we can run to the God of grace for the forgiveness that he has freely granted to us through his son. Christ himself 
calls himself the living water. He's the well that never runs dry. We can drink and drink and drink from his grace. We don't have to quarrel over it. There's plenty to go around. We can be filled to satisfaction in his forgiveness, in his abundance every time we come to him. And because Jesus rose from the grave and then he ascended to the Father's right hand and he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, we now have the promise of God's presence and his power for all eternity. You know what God says to us? Hey, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I will bless you. I'm your God. Isn't that amazing? But you need to know that these blessings are only yours if you have faith in the faithful one, in Jesus Christ. It's not enough for God to be Abraham's God. It's not enough for God to be Isaac's God or Jacob's God or your uncle's God or your grandma's God or your dad's God. He has to be your God. You cannot live and survive off of someone else's faith. You're in a land of famine if you do that. But the good news is that there is abundance to be found in Jesus Christ. Have you called on the name of the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ? Don't leave here today without doing that. There's no reason for you not to. None. Jesus promises all who come to me, I will not turn away. Who else promises something like that? One of the responsibilities that we have as a church is to give testimony to the next generation about the unchanging faithfulness of God and call them to put their trust in him. That's what I read for our prayer time this morning in Psalm 145. I will declare to the next generation. They will declare. I will declare. We will declare. That starts in the home. That starts in the home. Parents, do you want your kids to become more dependent upon Christ than they are upon you? Oh, I hope so. I am not dependable. But I know somebody that is. Are you teaching them his dependability by showing it repeatedly, both through his word and through your own life? Do your kids see your sins and your weaknesses and your failures, listen, and your repentance that follows those things? Do they see you running to God independence, casting yourself upon the Lord because he cares for you, running to Jesus Christ? Do they see God's faithfulness in spite of your folly so that they learn to trust his faithfulness in spite of their folly? Do they see his grace through you? Listen, I don't say this to condemn you, but let the Holy Spirit convict you if you feel like you're falling short in that. And listen to me, there is grace at the well You can look at all of your past sins, failures, weaknesses, and you can start right now growing in your own dependence upon Jesus Christ, and you can say, kids, listen, I don't have it all figured out, and I'm going to screw up, but there is a faithful one who will never fail you, and my aim is to show you who that is.
you get mad at them when they make the same mistakes when, that you've made? When it is like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, whatever? Or do you show them how the gospel of God's grace helps them grow in obedience to him by actually enabling them to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you tell them stories of how you've seen God's power and presence in your own life through the difficulties, through the conflict, through the adversities that you have walked through, not by yourself, but with God who's with you? Promises never to leave you nor forsake you. Have you ever shared your testimony with your child? Easter's coming up in a few weeks already, right? What a great time to help your kids see God's faithfulness through the life and death and resurrection of his son, to show them all that we've been seeing and building up in in Genesis, that the serpent crusher that God promised to send in Genesis 3.15 has come, and that serpent crusher is Jesus Christ. If you need help showing them that, we have a, a free resource for you, okay? This is, this, is, this is a great resource. This is called Easter Stories. It's got five stories in it that draw from the Gospels. It's got fun pictures in it. It's got a prayer at the end of that that you can pray with your child. And it takes all of these things and it shows us how, how God has fulfilled all of his promises to bring the serpent crusher and how Christ has, is, is that serpent crusher and what that means for us. They're out on the tables. Take them. We, I got plenty Take them and give them out. Invite somebody over to read it with your kids together. Read it for yourself. It's a great way to tell your kids about God's faithfulness. And don't stop there. Call them to faith in this faithful God. Keeping God's faithfulness in front of the next generation starts in the home, but it does not stay there. That's why we have ministries like Redeemer Kids. That's why there are people serving back there, teaching them the same gospel that we're hearing out here. That's why it doesn't matter if your kids stay out here because they're going to hear this gospel. But I don't want them to just hear it from me, especially if you are their parent and you know the Lord. They need to hear it from you. They need to see it from you. But guess what? It's hard work. Anybody that's a parent will raise their hand and say, yeah, that's, that's right. This is hard work. And God has wired us not to be independent people, but to be dependent upon the Lord and united to one another so that we share in this ministry, not this burden, but this ministry together to the next generation. So if you're interested, we could use help at Redeemer Kids. I'm not even ashamed to plug that. But also, if, you, if that's not your thing, if your kids are too old to go back there, if you're like, I, I don't know, you know, this is, that's intimidating, whatever, that's okay. That's not the only way we teach our kids. I have four of them. Most of you have met them. Help me. Help me. Be a part of our lives. Let them see God's faithfulness in your life and not just mine. Teach them the words of truth. 
so that their dad, who's also their pastor, and their mom, who's also their teacher, have other voices in their lives that are saying the same thing about the faithfulness of our glorious God. Help me, and we will help you. Deal? That was a pretty quiet response. I'll keep asking. Listen, if you hold to the gospel of truth, this wonderful news that God has given to us of his faithfulness to us in Jesus, not only do we have a responsibility to teach our kids here, but we have a responsibility to go out of these walls and to show his faithfulness to, a, to another generation that's out there wandering and needs to know this. They need to see that someone in their life is faithful and is good. We need to practice the gospel with each other. We need to encourage one another in it. We need to share it so that we're ready and comfortable sharing it with those, not just pointing them to God's faithfulness in his word and in our lives, but also calling them to believe in the God who is faithful to every generation. God's faithfulness continues from generation to generation, and he continues to call each generation to be faithful to him. He was faithful to Abraham, and Abraham had faith in him. He was faithful to Isaac, and Isaac had faith in him. He's faithful to Jacob, and Jacob had faith in him. I know that's sketchy because he's, he's a little crazy, but he had faith in him. He's faithful to you, and he's faithful to me. And we have faith in him too. And as those who've seen God's faithfulness, not only in the pages of Scripture, but in our own generation, may we take after then our Heavenly Father, proclaiming His faithful promises to the next generation and calling them to put their faith in Him. There's no greater thing to do with your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminders over and over. Lord, I'm thankful that your word is not a tiny book. I am grateful that it is chock full, abundantly full with evidence of your goodness, your mercy, your compassion, your faithful, steadfast love to us. And it keeps drawing us again and again to Jesus Christ. Father, would you grow our love for your word would you grow our love for one another, for the next generation? Would you help us to open our mouths and proclaim your goodness, your mercy, your kingship, your love, your faithfulness, not only to those in our generation, but in those in the generations to come until we're with you and they continue on what you're passing through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.